0: This season, we've been doing a series that Kirk titled, uh, What a Name, and we've been looking at four important names that the prophet Isaiah gave to show us what kind of Savior the Messiah would be. Isaiah 9, 6, it'll be up on the screen. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, now say them out loud with me, wonderful counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Kurt began the series talking about Wonderful Counselor, and then last week he talked about Mighty God. He said it was El Gabor, El, the powerful one, the mighty, mighty one. Today we're going to look at Everlasting Father, which in Hebrews is El Olam. This one's a bit tricky. The, The El is the same. It's the singular name used for God, which literally means mighty or powerful or strength but olam is a little bit of a challenge because it doesn't translate well into english it it literally it means in many other places in the bible it's translated as forever or everlasting in time everlasting in space and so when isaiah uses el olam he's not talking about everlasting father like in the trinity he's not talking about uh, he, he, what he's talking about is that The Messiah is beyond time and space. He's everlasting. El Olam, the Eternal One, the God without a beginning or end. King David calls out to El Olam in Psalm 90 verse 2. He says, Before the mountains were born, before you created the earth and the world, you are God. You have always been and you will always be. And what he says here, that from Olam to Olam, you are El. From eternity to eternity, you are mighty. You are God. And so... When we talk about Jesus as the everlasting Father, literally, what the prophetic message is is Jesus is an everlasting Father. He's always protecting. He's always providing. He's always watching over you. He's always walking beside you, and he's always wanting the best for you. The idea is that God is eternal. He's everlasting. He'll never change. We can count on him. It reminds me of what the writer to Hebrews says: Hebrews thirteen five. Jesus Christ is the same, you know this, yesterday, today, and forever. So, Kurt earlier read that passage out of Luke on the first Christmas Eve where the angels came to announce to the frightened shepherds, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So, if there's... Anything that we need a Savior to be, it's everlasting. A Savior who's eternal, who's consistent, who's constant. Some of you have really great dads, or you had a great dad. Your memories of your dad are fond, they're cherished. But for others, you didn't, or you don't. You didn't have a great relationship with your dad. And actually, for some people, some of the greatest pain in your life came from your relationship with your father. Maybe he was never there for you. Maybe he abandoned you when you were very little. Maybe it wasn't even his fault. Maybe he died or, or there was some pivotal moment where, when you really needed him and he was not there. Or maybe he was physically present but wasn't really there. I mean, he was always too busy, never really paid much attention to you. Or maybe in a church even this size, there are people who were abused by their father. So for whatever reason, there's a lot of pain that's brought up when you hear a statement like, Jesus wants to be your everlasting Father. For some people, that just doesn't do a lot for you because it, 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 it has created an image of Father in your mind that's challenging. Many people have a misconception of their Heavenly Father because of their experience with their earthly Father. A misconception is defined in the dictionary as having a view or opinion that is incorrect because it's based on faulty thinking or understanding. So if you have a misconception of what God's like, what He's really like, you're going to worry about things you shouldn't have to worry about. You're going to feel guilty over things God doesn't want you to feel guilty about. He's got no intention of you feeling guilty about it. You're going to carry unnecessary Burdens and fears and doubts all through your life, and God never intended for you to do that. Your understanding of God is going to determine, to a great measure, your happiness in life. Now, if you're watching this message online, or if you've got kids with you in this room, and your family believes in Santa Claus, then fast forward 30 seconds. <clears throat> How many of you know that when you have a misconception about something, it can really mess things up? like believing in Santa Claus. My family never believed in Santa Claus, but one Christmas, my sister Sybil, she's here today, she can verify this, um, she was really small, but she announced to all the cousins in my dad's family, there is no Santa. And she was right, there is no Santa Claus. But my dad's family had allowed a misconception about Santa Claus, They had a view or an opinion that was incorrect based on faulty thinking. They'd allowed that to creep into our family, and Santa had become a reality for the extended family, and no dissenting point of view was allowed. So my sister was right, but that had no bearing on the situation. A major conflict, and I mean major conflict, broke out among the adults. It was the first time I'd ever seen them argue about anything uh, in that family, But it broke out that day, and it took a couple more Christmases for things to recover from that painful event. Okay, we're back on. (laughs) When you get a false um, conception about God from the movies or from your parents, from religion, from anybody, if you end up with misconceptions of what God's really like, you're going to have problems in your life. You're going to have miseries in your life. So one of the things that you need to know, you might write this down, Jesus Christ came to earth to show us what God is really like. Jesus said in John 10 verse 30, I and the Father are one. One time Jesus' disciples asked him, show us the Father, and Jesus said in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. There's a prayer recorded in John 17 where Jesus is praying for his disciples and all those that would follow Sometimes it's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. At the close, Jesus says this, Righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. So what he's saying is, <clears throat> he came to earth to show us what the Father's really like. In Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son reflects the glory of God, and shows us exactly what God is like. Jesus came to earth to show us what God is really like, and when he did that, he just exploded all the stereotypes and all the myths myths that people have about God. He, He showed us that God is not just some impersonal force somewhere out there in the sky. God's not some cosmic energy field of the universe. God's not some angry tyrant who's just sitting in heaven waiting for people to mess up. God's not a creator who wound up the world and set it down and and just sits back to watch what happens. That's not our God. That's not the everlasting Father. So today, what I'd really like to talk to you about is what kind of Father is God? Psalm 103 is kind of where I want to look at today as the basis of this. Psalm 103, David writes, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David starts out by telling himself, because that's what he means when he says, O oh my soul. He's talking to himself. <clears throat> he says, I want you to praise the Lord, and I want you to do it with my whole being. That is, I want to put my whole heart into this. Soul, are you paying attention? I want to praise the Lord with my whole heart. David felt like it was certainly warranted in view of the many benefits that God had given him, which he's going to list, Psalm 103 verse 2, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. So David praised the Lord. He said, Lord, you've been so merciful to me, including the forgiveness of my sins, including the healing of my diseases. You delivered me from death and hell, because that's what he's talking about in verse 4 in the pit. The, The pit is a synonym for the grave or for hell. David says that his life has been enriched because of God's great love and His tender compassion. And so, he's filled actually with satisfaction for all the good things that God's provided. David felt really spiritually confident under God's hand. But, you know, God and Santa Claus are really different. According to the famous song about Santa Claus, Santa is a list keeper. You know what? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out what? Who's naughty or nice. The warning is clear in that song. Someone's watching you. They're keeping account, and they're noting whether you've been good or bad. And if you've been good, you're going to get good stuff, and if you've been bad, you're going to get what you deserve. That's one of the many reasons why God is so much greater than Santa. The gift that God gives at Christmas has nothing to do with how good or bad you've been. In fact, God is not a list-keeping God. God isn't keeping a naughty list and a nice list. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear today? That might be one of the best things i tell you today. Jeremiah 31 verse 31 says, "...I'll forgive them for the wicked things they did, and I will not remember their sins anymore." Jesus didn't come to earth to provide a means for good people to be affirmed in their goodness. And he didn't come for bad people to be pointed out for their badness. Jesus Christ came into this world to bring light into darkness. Jesus came to bring life in the midst of death, to make a way for people who have done wrong to become right. So let me get back to the text in verse 103, verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to all the people of Israel. And then verse 8 and following is what I really want to focus on today. It says, "The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat our sins, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities." For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now today I want to tell you four things about God that I think will help you really see what a wonderful Savior he is. The everlasting Father has a long fuse. He's got a short memory, he's got thick skin, and he's got a big heart. The first thing, God has a long fuse. In other words, God's patient. That's what verse 8 says. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Get this now. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Slow to anger. God's got a long fuse. King David wrote this verse, but it's interesting. He's quoting what Moses had to say 500 years earlier. In fact, this quotation is taken from Exodus 34, and in the context, Moses had been up on top of Mount Sinai, he'd been up having a confab with God, and, and um, you remember his, his friends were down at the bottom of the hill, you remember the story, did, did you see Charlton Heston and you know, the Ten Commandments, the people were having a party, and it wasn't a very nice party. These people, the people that God had just delivered from bondage in Egypt, they were now worshiping a golden calf. When they came down, um, aaron said, well we we took an offering of jewelry, and we just threw it in the fire, and it turned out to be a golden calf they weren 't just worshiping a golden calf; there was drunkenness and immorality going on, and the scriptures say that when God saw this, he was angry by the way, contrary to popular opinion that depicts God as some kind of mild-mannered, grandfatherly type. He's not. The Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament show God as someone who is capable of becoming fiercely angry. And on this occasion, God was angry, and He tells Moses, step back, Mo, I am going to nuke these people. <clears throat> well, that's from my unauthorized translation. God says, I'm going to obliterate them, and I'm going to start a new nation, and I'm going to begin with You? And then in verse 9 of Ezekiel 32, it says, Exodus 32, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, they are a stiff-necked people, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, then I will make you into a great nation. Now Moses, he's got to be terrified right now. This is really bad when God said, I'm going to destroy them, I'm going to going to start with you. And Moses appeals to God's grace. He falls flat on his face. He says, God, please don't do that. And then in verse 14, it says, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. The Lord tells Moses, okay, I won't bring this disaster on you, but I'm through with you. From now on, you're on your own. Exodus 33 verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go up To the land I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, maybe the Ammonites, I don't know. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God says, I'm not going to go with you anymore because you make me so mad that if I was with you, I might get... I might not be able to control, I might just obliterate you on the way. Once again, Moses pleased with God. Once again, God gives in. In fact, he even promises to give Moses a new copy of the Ten Commandments, because I skipped the part where Moses broke all Ten Commandments at the same time. Um, So God takes Moses back to the mountain. He reveals himself to Moses. He passes before Moses, and then chapter 34 records what God has to say. Exodus 34, verse 6, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the verse that David puts in Psalm 103, verse 8. That's how God wants to be known. He wants to be known as the God who is slow to anger. He's got a long fuse. Yes, he gets angry. But he puts up with an awful lot before he reaches the boiling point. The Bible tells us over and over and over again, the reason God exercises such great patience, he's hoping that we're going to take advantage of his extension of grace. He's waiting for us to turn from our sin, to to seek for forgiveness. The problem for us is that we often mistake his patience for a lack of concern about our own disobedience. Sometimes we just think, well, God probably doesn't care. But he does care. But He's just got a long fuse. It's good news. Thank God he's got a long fuse. Second thing, God has a short memory. If you go to the very next verse, Psalm 103, verse 9. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. <laughs> Have you heard the story about the man who said, every time I get in to an argument with my wife, she gets historical. His friend said, no, 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 you don't mean that. You mean hysterical. He said, no, I mean historical. Every time I get into an argument with her, she brings up every time I've messed up in the past. Parents, we do it with our kids too, don't we? But Father God will not always accuse. He will not harbor his anger forever. God chooses to have a short memory. So it says in verse 3, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Isaiah 57, verse 16, I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry, for then the spirit of man would grow faint before me. My, fair, my paraphrase is, if, if I just kept throwing your sins in your face over and over again, if I chose, and I certainly have the right to do it, to be angry towards you, your spirit would give up. You'd just go faint before me. You'd wither, you'd dry up, you'd shrivel up, you'd die. So imagine this, I go to God, I've been struggling with some kind of issue, some kind of sin. I go to God and I say, God, I ask your forgiveness and God says, well, actually, no, not this time. I only forgive that sin 50 times a week and this is time 73 for you. Your punch card's full. So no, Rob, you're not forgiven. But friends, that's not God. The Bible tells us God doesn't keep a record of sins that have been previously forgiven. Remember that verse, I shared, that verse I shared earlier? Jeremiah 31 verse 34. I will forgive them for the wicked things they did, and I will not remember their sins anymore. There's no punch card. God chooses to have a short memory. The third thing to know about God, God's got thick skin. Psalm 130, verse 10, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Friends, if God punished us every time we deserved it, we would be in a perpetual state of judgment. If every time we turned around, God be whacking us for some sort of failure, every time we had a harsh word or a selfish attitude or a prideful spirit, you know, the kind of stuff that is persistently attacking us. And and you know what I'm talking about, don't you? The kind of sin that you wrestle with the most often. The ones that give you the most trouble. The sin that Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 calls a weight that slows us down and so easily trips us up. You know what those sins are in your life. They might be different in my life or your life, but you know there's ones that we wrestle with over and over and over again. But God doesn't, Keep a list, and God's got thick skin. The Bible word for that thick-skinned attitude or attribute of God is forbearance. Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that kindness of God leads you to repentance? Aren't you glad that every time you sin, God doesn't just kill you on the spot? He could. The wages of sin is... Death, God's got every right. Thank God He's got thick skin. We're reminded in the Scripture that love covers over a multitude of skin. Lucky for us, God doesn't treat us the way our sins deserve. Our sins deserve the death death penalties. God views sin as cosmic treason. Death is what we deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. They're both pretty good deals, mercy and grace. So, friends, if God doesn't get you what you deserve, be grateful. Be grateful that God's got a long fuse. Be grateful that God's got a short memory. Be grateful that God's got thick skin. And then the last one from verse 11 and 12 is God's got a big heart. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Have you ever stopped to think about that? How far is the east from the west? When we ask God to forgive us from our sins, He, he removes them infinitely far away from us. You know how far that is? It's immeasurable. It's not possible to measure. And then Micah 7 verse 19 says, tells us that He will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Corey Kenboom added, God not only buries our sins in the depths of the sea, he puts up a sign that reads, no fishing allowed. Isaiah 38, 17, he has put all our sins behind his back. Isaiah 43, 25, he blots out all our transgressions for his own sake and remembers our sins no more. Isaiah 44, verse 22, he has swept away our offenses like a cloud. Our sins disappear like the sun burns away a morning mist. Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, I think that's a comforting message for us to hear. His name shall be called Eternal Father, Everlasting Father. Once we become a child of God, He's our forever Father. There'll be no goodbyes with Him. The Bible tells us, That in all creation, nothing will ever be able to separate us from God's love. One of the sad days in my life was saying goodbye to my dad for the last time. Um, We didn't really know it was goodbye when we sent him into surgery. And uh, he was telling a joke. My dad was always telling a joke. And he was going to give us a punchline when he came out of his surgery. and, And we never did hear it. It was a sad day. But our forever eternal Father, we don't have a day like that. It says in Romans eight I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing will ever separate us from God's love. Not life, not death, not sins in the past, not sins we haven't yet committed. There's nothing. There's no unfathering us. Charles Spurgeon said, there is no unfathering Christ and there is no unchilding to us. He is everlasting Father for all who trust Him. Praise God for that.